Hi, my name's Aaron Matthews, and I'm the director of the War and Peace of Tim O'Brien. Hi, I'm Tim O'Brien. I'm the, the victim of Aaron's film. My children have to live with what they call dad's bad time. So they too will carry the burden of a war. His mood depends on whether he has good or bad writing days. The struggle to make something good. And what a struggle. National Book Award winning novelist Tim O'Brien here. The best American writer of his generation. One of the rare works of recent literature. The things they carried sold more than two million copies and it's helped define Vietnam and the experience of war. The hard part is that I haven't written a book in 15 years. I have no idea where the handset is. It feels like there's a conspiracy of nature to stop me from writing anything. Think about what it means to go to war. Now think about it in terms of yourself. Do you want to go? Tim, when he's writing, it's it's so intense. It seems so conspicuous. War sucks. Yeah. You're going to be dead forever. There's the baggage that everybody carries, but he's had a little extra to carry all his life. I suddenly became a killer of people. It's <laughs> just the opposite of everything I thought I was. You can see how I feel overwhelmed. I need like another 10 years to write this. I know that time's running out. Have a great day at school, okay? okay. I love you. Love you too. It's why I'm writing the book. It's the inspiration that my kids, when I'm dead, will hear their father's voice and understand in life we have to fight through our battles. That is a trailer from the documentary, The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. Today we're in for a special treat as we welcome world-renowned author Tim O'Brien to the podcast. And joining Tim is Aaron Matthews, award-winning documentary director and producer of The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien. Uh, Aaron and Tim, welcome to Factual America. Aaron, how are things with you? Really good. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's great having you. Are you where are you? In, are you in Brooklyn? I'm in Brooklyn, yeah. And we just got uh, like a foot and a half of snow. So that's, uh, I'll take any change to the environment these days. And this is like a welcome welcome shift in, in the uh, visual panorama. Here. Okay. And Tim, how are things with you? I'm fine, thank you. I hope yeah. you're well. Oh, yeah, I'm well. Are you in Austin? I'm in Austin, Texas, yeah. Excellent. So as I said, we've, we've heard or some have seen, if they're on YouTube, the uh, trailer for The War and Peace of Tim <coughs> O'Brien. Um, Alex Belth is at Esquire says, in The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien, we witness a sliver of the t time he, Tim, has left with his sons and his wife. Matthews is a disciplined storyteller uninterested in self-indulgence. Um, it's releasing in March. Aaron, where will we be able to watch this? Uh, worldwide, you should be able to get it anywhere you want on a, a number of streaming platforms, March 2nd. Okay, so people can just, March 2nd, we'll make a note of that. And uh, so people can just Google it and they'll, they'll find you someplace. I hope so, that's the idea. <laughs> okay, <laughs> All right. So thanks so much, uh, Tim and Aaron, for coming onto the podcast. Uh, congratulations on this finally getting 
released. I know a lot of people have been waiting for this because it's it's been um, certainly uh, in the can for a while. Um, so many themes, so many things we could talk about, but maybe Aaron, you can kick us off here with a little bit of background about what this film is about and, sure. um, and whose idea was this? The quick log line is a uh, renowned author and Vietnam veteran, uh, Tim O'Brien, is battling to write one final book. So that's yeah. the, that's the, uh, the quick synopsis. And then to flesh that out, you know, for, for people who, who um, don't know Tim O'Brien, he's one of the most influential living American writers, national book award winner and author of uh, the groundbreaking book, The Things They Carried. Uh, if there's one author that young people today can remember, if they can only remember one author, it's, it's usually Tim O'Brien. So the film picks up as, as Tim is embarking on a new book after not publishing for 15 years. Early in, in this century, he had sworn off sentences when he became a father for the first time. And this was also right around the time that, that uh, America was waging new wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he, like most of us, was trying to wrap his head around what was going on with, with those wars. And the film uh, chronicles him struggling to finish this one last book. It certainly does. Now, who, how did you come up with this idea? I mean, you know, this, or how do you even pitch this? I'm going to watch, I'm going to make a film about a guy who spends 12 to 14 hours a day, you know, basically chained to a desk. Sitting in his underwear, as Tim likes to say. Well, that too, we see, yeah, certainly shorts, yeah. Tim, Tim t talks a lot about uh, sitting in his underwear writing. I don't think he, he, he figured that someone would actually document that. The, the, the genesis of the film, really, the, the short answer is Tim himself. I met Tim working on another uh, PBS documentary that was looking at the history of the military draft. Okay. And working on that project, I got really interested in how uh, Americans are, are really disconnected from the wars our nation wages, um, how so few people in this country bear the burden of, of killing and dying. And I interviewed Tim for this film, and his interview blew me away. Um, we also hit it off on a personal level. But in, in terms of his interviewing and, and what attracted me to, to him and then eventually the idea of doing this film was that he, could, he was able to express really big ideas, especially about the meaning and, and impact of war from a veteran's perspective in a, in a relatable way. And he was a storyteller to boot, you know, a, a, a great storyteller. So you pitched this idea to him about making this film. And idea. he said, no. Of course um, he did. Why, why would you, why the hell did you say yes, Tim? Well, I didn't for some time. Uh, I, I'm uncomfortable uh, talking about writing because perhaps out of superstition, but I don't think so. I think it deadens the, the act of uh, writing. You say you're going to do something and you're immediately locked into it. Yeah. So I felt, what if I don't want to write this new book and decide against it? Uh, I, would, I was worried I'd be locked into doing a book I didn't <laughs> in the end want to do. Yeah. Uh, but Aaron is a persuasive guy and he's a nice guy. And we became friends. I learned to trust him. And eventually, I didn't really say yes, except provisionally. I said, we'll give it a shot. We'll see how it yeah. goes. 
And over the next several years, Aaron essentially ended up living with me for, you know, big swaths of time. Yeah. And with my children and with my wife, he'd follow me around America as I gave talks at colleges and cities and so on. And uh, I just never ended up saying no more than I said yes. And so what is it like, Tim, to have a filming, have a, having a film crew come into your life like this? I mean, uh, following ev- your every move, they see your trials and travails of the creative process. They witnesses, witness the challenges of family life. I mean, you must have thought this is just too much at some point. If it hadn't been Aaron, I certainly would have. Uh, on a personal level, we have a lot in common. There's an age difference, but we share a great deal. We care especially about about art, trying to make something beautiful. He cares about filmmaking, I care about fiction. Yeah. And and that's a pretty strong bond. And uh, there were times when it felt a little intrusive. I remember at one point I was having a, I wouldn't say a fight in the physical sense, but a pretty earnest argument with my two kids about video games. I had threatened to ban them in the house permanently and to never allow them access to a computer or an iPhone or an iPad ever again. So this discussion, which went on probably for an hour or more, uh, at times got, got uh, I wouldn't say angry, but right on the edge of anger. And uh, Aaron was there, not really filming uh, much, a little bit at the beginning of it, he gently left the room, actually went outside while the uh, argument continued. By and large, though, that was rare, that kind of feeling. Uh, yeah. it, it felt comfortable having Aaron around. Yeah. Well, that's, that says a lot about the relationship, but I will say it also seems very natural and comfortable, the snippet of that argument, as you put it, uh, that we see. I, I've had the exact same argument. I think I've come back with the same thing. You're not going to get you're not going to get to, I may not have said two years, but it was probably a year <laughs> or several months, you know? Um, so it's very, very real to life. I, I felt, um, and Aaron, what was it like for you? I mean, uh, we get snippets too, that it's, um, it's obviously trying for the subject to have this uh, camera following them around. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe sometimes you, in theory, a cantankerous writer battling time, you know, is it, what's it like for the filmmaker? to document this? Well, like Tim said, we share so much in common. And, and one of the big things we, ca- we, we share in common in addition to, you know, taste in movies and books and, and art is our, our families. We, we both had, have two young kids roughly the same age. So we were both uh, going through the family journey at, at, at the same time. And I think it's, it's one of the special things you, see and get to experience watching this film is that you 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 uh you have a great artist and mm. so many of the stories we were told about great art being made uh are of these like unencumbered geniuses who don't have to worry about mm. money and family and all the things that regular people have to worry about and tim in the film isn't afraid to show uh, in a very personal, honest way that he's encumbered, you know, and I think a lot of people can relate to it. I, 
how many of us have had that iPhone video game conversation, you know? Yeah. And, and I yeah. think it's a relief to a lot of people say, oh, wow, you know, Tim O'Brien has that talk also. <laughs> <laughs> Greens are driving him crazy as well. I mean, yeah, I think there's quotes from the film too. I mean, uh, I think Tim, you say, uh, you know, life gets in the way. Here's a perfect example. The phone rings. The, uh, uh, I was, I personally was on the phone with the, uh, tumble dryer repairman today you know these sort of things mm -hmm. happened i mean that, that's life tim i mean what does i mean what did your family think about all this and your sons in particular oh my sons were at first astonished that anybody would want to take a picture of me much less film me they were, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, why do they want to look at you and i pretty much agreed with them uh it was a sore point that this why do it sort of thing. I kept telling Aaron that even a documentary requires a certain amount of drama yeah. of contention and struggle and so on. Yeah. And Aaron said wisely, don't worry, it's going to come. And it did. And the item you just mentioned is one of those things, the intrusions that life presents. Aaron, for example, was, we were going to film in a, a small town near Austin, Texas, and we were getting in my car, and the car started, kind of, and began to, I was at the wheel, Aaron beside me, and the car rolled out of the driveway, but without any steering. And a fan belt had broken, the power steering was gone, and the car sort of just rolled out into the street and wouldn't go any, any farther than that. Yeah. So he, he followed me inside and filmed me calling mechanics and tow trucks and all the rest. It's an example of what happens a lot. And when you read biographies of writers, you rarely get these petty little trivial uh, trespasses on, on life that get in the way of what you really want to do. In this case, we were going to go film a, you know, a scene for his movie. Uh, it happens all the time, though, when I'm working on a book. The phone will ring and it'll, you know, be the swimming pool guy saying there's no water left in your pool. It's all out in the golf course. And, yeah. <laughs> and you spend the next six weeks trying to get your pool fixed. Things like this happen. And it's, I think it's interesting to, to make writers human, um, to watch the, the joy of making a piece of work, but also the... the, the ordinary uh, encumbrances of life itself as they intrude on it and make it difficult to do it. Certain things you just have to pay attention to. And, you know, one of them is, you know, if your toilets are overflowing, you got to mm -hmm. fix them. Yeah. And I think, Aaron, I mean, this, uh, we do gain so as you've already mentioned, I think this film brilliantly captures a lot of insights into the creative process. I mean, yeah, like you say, there's this sort of stereotype of the uh i don't know uh author cranking out thousands of words a day or something or has it all structured and has this gets up at six in the morning has his coffee and gets a few pa you know several pages written or a chapter written but that doesn't happen does it it's certainly not in tim's case but i think there's you, you even this have this great scene with uh, ben fountain even where you're discussing some of these same issues definitely um and it's something that just as a filmmaker I found particularly gratifying, <laughs> not just to see somebody else struggle in the misery loves yeah. company kind of way, being able to watch Tim's process. And basically once we started the film, which was like five years ago now, 
and, uh, and Tim committed to writing the book, which by the way, at the outset, there was no promise that he was going to finish it. He really, I actually genuinely thought he wasn't going to finish the book and I was just going to have an ambiguous ending. And I, I was kind of relaxed. It, it, it took a lot of the pressure off me in the beginning. I was thinking like, okay, this, this film will take me like the next 15 years. I'll work on a bunch mm -hmm. of other projects in the meantime. I'll just be able to do it in my you know, spare time. Right. And then suddenly, like at the midway point, I show up and Tim has written, you know, 150 pages and he tells me he's turned on the gas. I'm like, holy shit, like this is actually happening. He's going to finish this thing. And right at that point, it was like we were kind of on concurrent paths and being able to, to watch, you know, and be with a master storyteller as you're trying to tell your own story about the master storyteller. There was, there was, there was undue pressure on me for sure, but I, I also learned a lot just little things about writing. I remember one time I asked Tim how he came up with um, dialogue and he said the purpose of dialogue, one of the purposes of dialogue is to, is to discover your story. And that whole idea of, you know, I, I love the way mm. he framed that, that, you know, we're, we're constantly discovering our story as you're writing it. That's another kind of misconception I think we have about writing an art that it's like it's 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 done it's in the head it's all mapped out mm, and then the, mm. the, the artist just kind of you know spits it out and i really could relate to that as a documentary filmmaker because that's all that time that that you spend um following the characters in your film around the people who you're making the film about is is a process of discovery you know mm. uh, a process of trying to figure out you know, what, what am I doing with this plan that I have, which is ever evolving, you know? And I found that really fascinating. And I learned so, so much being around Tim and I'm, I'm ex extremely grateful. Well, as, as someone who's had the privilege of seeing the film, I, I agree, I agree. I think I learned a lot too. I mean, I think, um, and I want to say spoiler alert. I mean, I was, it is, it is dramatic. I, I was, you know, you, you're thinking, I mean, even if you've Googled it and you know that the books come out and everything, um, I kept thinking the book's not going to get made. I mean, Tim, you said that you've got, it's going to take you another 10 years, I think at, at one point. Um, but in terms of your experience, I know you say you don't really like talking about writing, um, but is, is your, are your struggles typical you think for the, for most authors? Do people, you know, I think uh, Meredith, your wife mentions even no, he hasn't really <clears throat> written much the last few months. Um, you know, Ben Fountain's on there and says he just keeps slogging away. It's a hard slog, I think. Is this, this is more typical than the, than the uh, stereotype that we have of, of the authors, isn't it? I think so, yes. It's, it is pretty typical. Uh, I might take typicality to an extreme, though. I'm <laughs> extremely slow writer, for example. I'll work on a sentence, sometimes for an entire day, or certainly a paragraph. It's a rare day when more than you know, a paragraph yeah. is finished. And even when it's finished, I'll end up tossing it out because later in the story, I won't need it or it mm. contradicts something later in the story. So it's constantly, as Aaron put it, it's evolving. And I am discovering the story, as I think most writers do. I think that is typical. You may set out with a plan. You know, Jack falls in love with Jill and they go on the honeymoon and the yeah. yacht sinks and Jack takes the only life preserver and ends up yeah. bobbing alone and his dead wife floating nearby. But 
as the story is told, you know, you discover new things about your character from what they say and what they do. Uh, a friend of mine, John Irving, the novelist, described it as little gremlins popping into your story and sort of yeah. taking it over. As you write a piece of dialogue, the, the, what, what you write is not what you had planned to write. The word choice is different, the meaning becomes different. And you stare at it and you say, wow, that, that's unexpected. And it also sounds good. It sounds like real human speech, yeah. which is often unexpected. We sometimes say things as I'm doing right now that I sure as hell hadn't planned to say five seconds ago. Right. But here I am talking. And you discover things out of what you say. It's one of the, both the joys and the, the great troublesome aspects of be, doing what I do of writing, writing a book. You can only plan so much. And then the characters and the situation, uh, the, the drama of the story uh, takes command of you. And you're more following it than composing it. You're trying to catch up with where the story is going. I mean, individual words, the words you use are very important, aren't they? I mean, I imagine that's why, they are. you know, uh, there, it, some maybe to the average year, you may not even hear sometimes a slight difference, but that the difference the, the especially in English, I think, especially there's this each, each word has this just different con slightly different connotation that makes a whole difference. Sure does. Yeah. I mean, every noun matters, every verb, every comma matters, every period periods matter to a yeah. writer when there's a conclusive aspect to an utterance. Uh, that doesn't ramble on and on. Or in some cases, you want a character to ramble on and on, in which case you have dashes and commas. It's the voice that you're listening to in your head as you're you know, composing dialogue, or as you're doing narration and so on. You're listening to something inside you. And you're listening to more than one voice. You're listening to myriad voices, a whole orchestra full of voices in your head, only one of which is your own. And and Aaron, I think uh, what what Tim was saying about writing is, um, and as he's already alluded to, I mean, we know that certainly in this era of documentary, but I think it's probably always been true. You have to have a story. You have to have drama and 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 tensions and things like that to make a good doc. Um, but is it? I mean, and that's I, I would do some work with a production company here, and they do. You know, that's always gets stressed. You know, but the reality is, once the cameras roll that story starts, that changes for the filmmaker as much as it, as it can change for the writer, can't it? Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, Tim, Tim was aware of that from the beginning, telling me there are no stakes here, you know. He kept, <laughs> the running joke was, I have to die in order for this film <laughs> to be a film. You know, and um, <laughs> Tim was there smoking away, which was the other, the other reason I really wanted to do this film was that every time I filmed there was, you know, the, the, it was very cinematic with smoke lingering <laughs> in the back. And, it was film noir almost, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, what, what uh, Tim wasn't accounting for when he would kind of scold me for saying, like, we need, we need a story with stakes where, where you know, something, something, you know, it needs to be life and death is, is how compelling honesty is you know, mm. for people and I, and, and how rare a thing it is to hear people uh, and, and, and be living with people who speak from the heart 
about about those big game issues, about love and death, about the issues mm. that really matter to us. And like Tim said, there, I'll give away another spoiler, but Tim Tim almost dies in the film. You know. Yep. Um, yep. So the theme of mortality is is very much in the film, and there there are these big issues. You know, war, art, family, mm. love, death. You know, but because it's Tim O'Brien he's able to kind of bring these issues down to uh, a very human level and put those kind of perfect words that, that you were, yeah. you were talking about in a way that, you know, make it accessible. I completely agree. And I think that uh, brings us a good point to maybe interject here with a, a clip. Uh, and actually we'll go to a quick, uh, we'll go to a quick break as well, but over that break, we'll also play a clip, which is um, one where um, I think, uh, um, Tim is, is it, I'm not sure if it's something that you've, well, I'm pretty sure it's something you've written, but then at the end, uh, basically saying kind of, it's, it's about Vietnam and your experiences there. And then 50 years on being, um, thinking back, did I actually finishing that paragraph and did I actually serve in that war? I think is kind of the, the gist <laughs> of it. I'm not getting it completely right, but uh, why don't we. Christ was I in war. Yeah, yeah. Was, well, why don't we uh, why don't we go to that? Uh, we'll go to that clip, and we'll be right back with uh, Tim O'Brien and Aaron Matthews. It was early in my tour. We went across this rice paddy, and we immediately took sniper fire. The world just exploded in our faces. And then a hand grenade came sailing out of the brush. You could see the fizzling. It was so fast, so scary, so unreal. And what was overwhelming in memory really is nothing but the grenade keeps coming out and it won't stop. After a lapse of 10 or 20 centuries, the grenade detonates. And yet everything that is happening isn't happening because it absolutely and positively cannot be happening. The bee sting sensation in my left hand, a kid named Clausen holding his stomach, somebody shouting, but not shouting words, shouting lizard shouts, and then another bee sting, and all around me and above me, there are the unzipping sounds of eternity passing by. These are bullets, I'm pretty sure. And then, nearly 50 years later, I light a cigarette and take a breath and stare down at this paragraph and think, Christ, was I in a war? You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with legendary author Tim O'Brien and award-winning director and producer Aaron Matthews. Uh, the film we're discussing today is The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien. Uh, it's releasing on March 2nd, and you can see it pretty much wherever you stream films, uh, we gather. Uh, if nothing else, Google it. I'm sure you'll find it. 
Johnny Diamond at the Literary Hub says, uh, The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien follows O'Brien on the journey of his last book as he reveals the everyday ties between duty, art, family, and the trauma of war. Uh, Aaron, you've already talked about the big themes that, we, uh, that the film just deals with. What makes wars worth fighting? How do we f write about war? What are the obligations of citizens with respect to war? What are the after effects of war in individuals and families? And um, I think there's a few more themes than that, I would, I would argue, uh, that's worth, worth discussing. But uh, we've just seen this clip about, I think it goes back to sort of the discussion we were having about the creative process. And um, Tim, what was it like not to write for nearly, what, 17 years as, a, as someone who is an author and a writer? Well, it was mostly a joy to be relieved of that constant, you know, 15 hours a day at a word processor or a computer. Yeah. I had two children. I loved them and I wanted to be around them and help them live their lives and grow. There was all the time throughout those 17 years, there was this aching sense of guilt uh, that I ought to be squeezing in 20 minutes or half hour a day at, you know, writing a story. But the guilt would vanish and go away for a while and then come back an hour later. Uh, but it did nag at me. I, I, I wanted to somehow balance being a good father uh, with at least writing occasionally. But as we spoke about earlier, life just kept intruding. Kids got the flu or colds or had to be taken to school or picked up at school. And we had to eat, so there were grocery stores to visit and all those things. Yeah. Um, I really now can't recall how it was that I even embarked on this latest book. I know my wife had wanted me to, to write about being a father and wanted, wanted me to write even more especially about being an old man with two young kids and what that felt like and the burdens of your approaching mortality. You know, no one lives forever. And I would begin imagining my kids uh, without a dad at age, you know, 18 or 21 or 23. And gradually I became convinced that I ought to be leaving for my children uh, at least a mark of their dad's love on paper. Mm. Something that I wish my own father might have left for me. Just the simple words on a piece of scrap of paper, I love you, dad. And I did that in 300 and some 50 pages in my new book, a lot of marks. It was written as a gift to my children, yeah. really. And it wasn't a literary book, it wasn't a commercial book wasn't a parenting book. It was a bunch of love letters to my children, sometimes framed in, in story form, and sometimes just picking up an anecdote uh, that they might have used and expanding on it. But in any case, the, the, the sense of silence for so long was finally overcome by what I consider to be an act of love. I think that's that's beautiful, and I think it the, at least personally, what I took out of this movie is that one of the main themes, uh, and we'll talk about some of the other themes shortly, but 
that I mean, I, I kept it, it's it's about fatherhood, isn't it, Aaron? Would you it agree? Is. Isn't that what this film's all about? Yes, I would agree. Yeah, fathers and sons, American fathers and sons. I think yeah, Turgenev. Yes, it's. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, we had R.J. Cutler, the uh, the documentary filmmaker, on earlier. He's done sure. Belushi, uh, that's out now, and I was asking about the genius of Belushi. And uh, he said he was on a panel one time with the historian and biographer, Walter Isaacson. And this came up, what makes the man or, and uh, he said in his best faux uh, Southern accent, it's all about daddy. And uh, I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, is that, cause that's some that comes out in here as well. I mean, you, you're talking about this love letter, uh, Tim, that uh, love letters to your sons, but uh, I mean, is that, it's, do we maybe, I don't know, this is not even in my notes, but is this, uh, do we maybe underestimate the importance that dads have on their, uh, on, on shaping their, their children's lives? Um, I'm not sure uh, if we underestimate it or overestimate it. That's probably one of the problems of being a father. You can overestimate or underestimate your own yeah. importance to your own kid. Yeah. There are times when I wonder if the kids even listen to the words coming out of my mouth because they certainly don't do what I ask them to, uh, <laughs> unless, exactly. unless, they, unless they want to. And then other times I'm shocked at their, how incredibly penetrating they've been about me. There's an anecdote in the book uh, and it also appears uh, in ref it's referred to in Aaron's film where we were on vacation in Southern France uh, at a very ritzy, resort way beyond our means. And uh, my wife and I were outside one day having a drink at a bar and my kids were playing ping pong on a, on a lawn outside. And my cell phone rang, it was my sister calling and my mother had died uh, way you know, halfway around the world. And I remember, I remember going over to the ping pong table to tell my kids what had happened. And then I remember for the next hour or two, maybe three hours, just playing ping pong with that ball going back and forth over that ping pong tennis table net. Uh, much like my brain was going back and forth with memories of my mom alive and then the yeah. situation at this strange resort where everybody looked like George Hamilton, including like, women look like George Hamilton, <laughs> bronzed and beautiful. And what a bizarre setting to be in, in a foreign culture with your mother dead on the other side of the world. Later, we walked down to, the, to a small village below the resort where we could eat cheaply. And on the way down a hill with the Mediterranean down below, sun setting, I was holding my older son's hand, his name is Timmy. Yeah. And at the time he was probably eight, maybe seven years old. And I said to him, are, are you thinking about grandma? And Timmy was silent for a moment. And then he looked up at me and said, no, I'm thinking about you thinking about grandma. Mm. Well, that is an example of what I meant by you're astonished yeah. at a seven or eight-year-old kid uttering those words of empathy and understanding 
that he was reading, he was inside my mind, imagining what must be happening and that ping pong feeling in my head. Yeah. So in that kind of case, it's hard to, it's hard to overestimate what you can learn from your cho- own children or deliver to your own children. Yeah. I think, um, that's that's incredible, and I think as fathers and anyone else who's on this, who's listening or watching, who's who's a parent, will know. I I think knows that feeling. I think we all have our, hopefully, all have a similar similar story. Um, Aaron, was this the intent to capture fatherhood? Is when you started this film? For sure, it was. It's it was one of the big themes, you know, because. Uh, Tim is is wrestling with his relationship with his own father as he's writing this book to his children. So fatherhood was very much um, an important part of the film, among many other themes, you know. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, some of the other themes that uh, obviously there's this, uh, it's, you know, we're not, I don't want to shy away from it, obviously the whole, um, uh, and I think maybe it's a good time for another clip um, that we have, which is um, kind of goes back in time a little bit because it's got a lot of archival with it about, I know, uh, Tim's frustration, certainly as as you said, uh, your period of not writing kind of besides corresponding with fatherhood also corresponded with uh, new wars and places like Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And... Um, I think it's one, I think you're on C-SPAN where you're basically saying, you know, this, you find this whole thing really sad, what's, what's happening. Um, I think that would be a good way of introducing maybe sort of another, uh, maybe a little more discussion about uh, sort of um, this, el- these, some of these themes that come up in the, in the film. And so um, if you don't mind, let's watch that or listen to that clip and then we'll be uh, right back with uh, Tim and Aaron. When Vietnam collided with my life, I yearned for revenge against the cheerleaders and celebrators of war. Somehow I imagined I would strike back with sentences. It was a ludicrous and naive fantasy. Sentences don't do shit. no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. We must take the battle to the enemy. As a man who served in a war, who watched death, who looked at corpses day after day after day, I'm here to tell you, be careful, be cautious. Don't go killing people unless it's absolutely necessary. The whole purpose of my writing, at least in part, was so People would think twice about going to war for silly reasons. I've been constantly disappointed. Coalition forces are battling an enemy determined and difficult to identify. I couldn't believe it. Sitting in my living room watching the wars happen in Iraq and Afghanistan, asking myself the same questions I asked about Vietnam. 
Why are we here? What are we accomplishing? I feel sad about the world. I feel sad about more war talk, more bodies. It's sad. Tim, uh, do you still feel that way? I mean, you know, because Iraq and Afghanistan are, so that was a time when they were still in the nightly news. They're not really anymore. Um, I think it comes out in the film, but your, your frustrations about how we, American society, but just generally people see war. Um, I think a very poignant thing for me was you talking about how we don't talk about the rectitude of wars anymore. Is this how, is this, do you, is these frustrations haven't gone away, have they? No, they'll never go away. Our wars, unlike pandemics, are, are man-made. It's not some virus mutating and evolving yeah. and killing us. And we're doing it to ourselves. A kind of uh, mutual suicide uh, that's been going on for centuries. I see no end to it. But that doesn't mean I can't be depressed by it and saddened by it and outraged by it. And I think if I were to choose one of those words, it would mainly be outraged. I find it outrageous that we can spend 15 years in Vietnam killing 3 million people. And uh, you go to a school in America and they know nothing about Vietnam War. Uh, who won? They often don't know. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, mm. It's sad that there are all these dead people and, uh, you know, 45, 50 years later, we don't remember what it was about, why it was fought, who won, what the issues were, if, the, if they crossed anyone's mind at all. Uh, there's also the, the subterranean issue running beneath this, this current of, of man's seeming uh, unappeasable appetite for killing people. It seems unappeasable. Yeah, we'll do it and then not remember why. That's Vietnam. But it's also true of the Battle of Hastings. Who remembers what that was all about? Yeah. Uh, very few people, even I suspect, even in the UK, understand much about the underlying causes. Was it a good war, bad war? Did the right people win the war? Was it worth fighting? Was it worth killing for? Was it worth dying in? Very few people recall. What about the Reconquista in Spain, lasting 700, 800 years, yeah. 7 million dead people? I doubt more than, you know, eighth of a percent of the people on the planet even heard the word Reconquista, much less know anything about it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you can hear the outrage in my voice. It will not go away, and it shouldn't go away. There should, in fact, be more people outraged by this. But no, we watch our daily news. We might say, boy, that's stupid to our wife, and then turn it off and, you know, go have a cocktail and forget it. But And, and in the film, uh, you say, uh, or maybe it's even part of the archival clip, you shouldn't fight for, I think it's said a few times, that we shouldn't fight for stupid reasons. Are there ever any good reasons for a war? At the time, they're all good reasons to the people who are for the war. Yeah. Hitler had good reasons. They were insane yeah. and evil. But to him, there were good reasons. God's on everybody's side. That's a good reason. They're on the side of Allah, and they're on the side of the Christian God, the Judeo-Christian God. They're on everybody's side. Uh, 
that's kind of the problem, I think, is that there are these reasons that seem, let's contain communism. That was the essential mm-hmm. ground level reason for the war in Vietnam, let's contain its spread. And that's what John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon all proclaimed. Let's stop this evil from spreading. Well, now we have a brand new, and that one seems to have vanished from our perspective. We've forgotten about it, by and large, until Putin does something like he did yesterday. And and then we remember. Uh, But yeah, all the reasons at the time can be made to sound at least palatable, if not righteous. And they're made that, they're framed in such a way as to sound that way to a lot of people. the difficulty is years later, decades later, or centuries later, the reasons don't stand up very well. In fact, they become so trivial as to have been forgotten. Mm. That's, that's odd to forget why 7 million people died. And specifically about the Vietnam War, I mean, do you, I, I sometimes get the feeling that this is, for many Americans, they sort of see Vietnam. The, the thing is, instead of Vietnam being typical of wars, they see Vietnam as the anomaly almost. And that, you know, if generals are always fighting the last war or whatever we are do, they are doing and we as societies are doing, um, it's almost like, well, just don't make that mistake anymore. And somehow this war is different. The next one is. Well, if you read Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five, or you read Joseph Heller, Catch-22, the absurdities of it all were apparent even in this righteous war to both of those excellent writers. In part, I think that's what a fiction writer is for. Uh, It's to remind us of things that in in our childhood we kind of knew instinctually, not in our heads, but just knew that you don't kill people for stupid reasons, that you don't do absurd things with your life. Uh, and I think Homer reminded us of that yeah. in the Iliad, yeah. that all that death going on and that, you know, during the siege of Troy, with uh, people listening to the gods egging them on or, you know, bidding them adieu, either way, uh, there, there's a certain craziness about it. Mm. Uh, I've often wished I could like spend 20 minutes with Homer just asking him a bunch of a barrage of questions like, for example, do you, Homer, really believe that Zeus was talking to Achilles? Do you really believe that? Or is that a metaphor or a symbol? Because you write it as if it's really happening. Uh, And I get a feeling sometimes that the presidents of the United States seem to believe that God is talking to them, at least our most recent president, yeah. or our most le- recently vacated president. Yeah. Maybe evacuated is the better word. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, um, I think you, uh, you're talking about those 20 minutes. I think some people could ask similar questions of you about some of your work. What is, what is really happening or not happening? Um, but Aaron, I mean, just to sort of, I know you've, as you said, you met Tim on the, uh, this, this film you did on the draft and what struck me is some of the points you said very early on. Um, I mean, my, I mean, it, for most of us, uh, as speak as an American are, com- you know, completely unaffected by these wars. You know, it's, it's not like, I mean, as, as Tim was saying previous or says in the film, there was this constant discussion about the rectitude of the Vietnam war. Uh, we know about world war two and other wars, you know, society was affected certainly here in the UK, uh, obviously, 
but uh, you know, except for my, my, I mean, I have to say, I have a brother who served several tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if it weren't for him, I think I would have, and, and if I didn't follow the news necessarily, I would, you know, life goes, was going on as if there was nothing happening. Is, you know, is that something you capture in your, your film on the draft? Yeah. And, and I, it was, it really was the motivation, the, the, one of the original motivations for making this film. When Tim talks about people and when, you know, like you were saying, people just going about their daily lives and not being affected by the war, that was me. You know, I was living in that yeah. bubble. Um, and in a, in, in a sense, that still is me. It's very easy in, in America not to, 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 to remain unaware and unaffected by the wars that we are waging right now. Um, that, that that are happening right now. And I, I, I wanted, I, I you know, it, it was kind of this unveiling for me as, Tim, uh, you know, being around Tim and hearing him break it down. Um, and it made me want to uh, kind of spread the gospel in that way and, and, and um, mm. you know, explore America's fraught relationship with the war and the military, you know. And t Tim seemed to me someone who was perpetually grappling with something we should all be wrestling with, you know, what what does it do to live in a in a highly militarized nation, engaged in military action around the world with a culture and politics uh, so revolved, so steeped in war, which we are in America. You know, what does that do to us as, mm. as people? What does it do to us as individuals? You know, I think now, and and Tim mentioned it briefly earlier and I, I was curious because as you said it i you, now that i think about it certainly it, it comes out in our in the language and how we describe things um and we may not in this last year or so been talking too much about military conflicts but we've got covid19 and we keep talking hearing about uh a war against an invisible enemy and um <laughs> I mean, I mean, Tim, that's how a does great that... example. You know, so so many of the metaphors that we use in general are connected to war, and you know, like you said, we're 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 on a battlefield with this virus. You know, yeah, yeah. embattled politicians are in their bunkers, running campaigns to mount offensives, and yeah. their nurses and doctors are on the front lines. And yeah. again, like, what does that do uh, to have this thing, war? Uh, that is so brutalizing, as Tim points out in the film, to make it so much of our lives. And also, what, is it, what does it do to our response to these things, whether it's a pandemic or just everyday matters when we apply war to, to the way we think about them? You know, do we, do we want to respond to every one of our, uh, our, our, crisis our or, obstacles or yeah, yeah. crises in our life as if it's a war? Is, is that the best response, you know? Tim, what do you think? Everything Aaron just said is, I agree with that. Do we want to? The answer is, I don't know. I think that's why Aaron framed it as a question. Yeah. If I were to guess, knowledge is imperfect, but I'd say probably not. Probably that should not be the governing metaphor that we use in so much of our lives. The war on poverty, the war on drugs, right. the war on terror. It goes from the petty to the, you know, the big massive warfare, but it's applied to so many aspects of our life. It's like in America, in any case, as a governing a metaphor for much of what we do. And my guess would be that's not healthy, that it's, uh, it's a learned tradition, I believe, 
going stretching way back. Uh, but it would be best, I think, if we were to at least ameliorate it, to find other metaphors to talk about our lives and our problems, whether they're crises or just problems, uh, to try not to frame them uh, in terms that are essentially war means killing people. That's what a real war is. And by somehow getting that violent aspect into our discussions about petty problems and using it as a metaphor, that just strikes me as unhealthy. And do you think it, uh, well, I'm going to struggle with the right word, but do you think it belittles what you and others went through in terms of your experiences going through a, a real war? I think even the word war belittles what we went through. It's such an abstract war word, it's almost without meaning because it's been stretched over such a wide terrain of experience. I think we ought to dispense with the word war. And we ought to in every, wipe it from Shakespeare, wipe it from my books, wipe it from newspapers and magazines and substitute the words killing people, including children. So instead of declaring war in Congress, you declare we're gonna kill people, including children. And you have to utter those words. Otherwise, it's just, it's become a kind of euphemism. It's so yeah. abstract yeah. to those who haven't been in it. And it kind of, it kind of whitewashes the experience of, of death, of witnessing death and participating yeah. in it, of watching it happen, of almost dying oneself or of dying oneself. Yeah. It, it's such an abstract word that unless you're actually engaged in it, it, it doesn't have a, it doesn't approximate the actual event of it all. This is true not just of soldiers. They're among the victims of war, but what about their wives? Mm. And what about their children? What about their neighbors and friends and the people who have to live with them? In some ways, a gold star mother, a mother who has lost a, a child in war, is more of a victim of war than the person who died because the person who died is dead. Doesn't worry about it any longer, but the mother carries it into old age and will jerk awake at two in the morning and ask where her kid is. And her kid's been dead for 50 years. Yeah. That's, that's a burden. Um, and it's a little bit what, that, that encompasses what I was trying to say about this word war itself. It's, it really has a euphemistic quality that's bothersome to me. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I will still use the word because I'm, I'm not very good with it. Well, I just did too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, uh, I think a really poignant, well, there's many poignant uh, parts of this film, but uh, I, the thing that I had never really thought of is uh, this idea of the, um, the after effects of war on individuals and families. And as you said, you've already mentioned the gold star mother, but uh, as you mentioned, um, long after you're gone, the ghost of, of the, the Vietnam War specifically will be passed on to your sons. Yes. Alas, that's true. They call it, when I glaze out and I go back in memory for an instant or two at the dinner table or just sitting with my kids, they, they recognize that I've, I've left and they know where I've gone in my head briefly. Yeah. I can't say it happens a lot. That would be an exaggeration, but it happens occasionally, every month or two. Yeah. 
and they know it and they recognize it and they fall silent and they give me the peace to remember and feel bad but yeah they're they're going to be the inheritors of the vietnam war and they already are in a lot of ways they're intellectually not too interested in it but emotionally they're engaged in it because they live with a guy who was in it yeah I mean, you've, you've, you've just uh, raised that point and I was going to ask you because it's been a few years now. Uh, what is, is Timmy, what, about 18 now or, or so? 17. Yep. 17. So have they started showing any interest yet? Are they, have they started asking you questions about that? Final, finally, Timmy has. It's taken a long, long time. Yeah. But he's now uh, embarked on reading two books uh, in preparation really for going to college next year. Yeah. One of them is The Things They Carried that I wrote, and another is Slaughterhouse-Five by Vonnegut, Kurt wow. Vonnegut. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until very, very recently, maybe the last three, four weeks, that I began getting inklings when he'd come up to me at night and say, what do you recommend I read? <laughs> I, I, have, yeah. I have recommended he not read The Things They Carried until he's old enough to, yeah. to uh withstand the frustrations of that book what's real what what's not real what happened what didn't happen there's a lot of frustrations for young readers with that book that later on be, are not quite quite as frustrating but now yet he is interested and that's a kind of relief because i've been belly aching to aaron for five years why don't they want to read my books I, I what's wrong with these kids i'm their yeah. fucking I'm their father. <laughs> and if my dad were Ernest Hemingway, by God, I'd have read The Sun Also Rises by now or something. Exactly. exactly. Well, it's like my kids don't even watch this podcast. I don't know if they've even seen an episode. But that's oh, that's got to hurt. That's yeah, the yeah. same story. Yeah. <laughs> um, my kids don't watch my films. I'll just join them. Join the club. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does remind me. Uh, Yes. Well, it's not even a story I need to share. Just uh, I had an old boss at The Economist who one time said, oh, we were both heading home after a trip to North Canada, actually. And uh, he said, how old are your kids? And I think they're at that point, they would have been like three and four, my older two. And he's like, oh, you're still at that age where they're happy to see you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I come home and I'm lucky if I get a grunt, you know. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> um We've just spent a lot of time talking about, um, again, I'll use that word, war. Um, I, another thing that comes out in the film is, uh, is, is you note, uh, uh, you didn't use the word curse, but you said it's sort of, being a good, you know that you're going to be described as a war writer in your obit. And, um, and we know it's obviously served as a backdrop. You obviously write about a lot of different themes. Um, and, you know, I think because you'll, you would tell us and probably tell your students at uh, Texas State, uh, you write about what you know and that can, and your experiences and that serves as a background. But how do you, I mean, if, if you were to be able to write that obit, what would you want to be remembered for? As a writer, writer, um, I doubt Joseph Conrad's an English writer, as you yeah, know. I doubt that his yeah. obit began Joseph Conrad, the great ocean writer, died this morning at age whatever. Yeah. He wouldn't be described as an ocean writer, though many of his stories, as you know, were yeah. not only set on the ocean, the sea, but had their sources of 
passion coming from his, his experience as wine, but he wasn't called an ocean writer. It's uh, Philip Roth is not described as a suburb writer, though most of his stories, <laughs> nor is Updike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Morrison, the American Nobel Prize winner, I think would be aghast if she has been described as a black writer or African-American yeah. writer. It's a kind of racial, racial box you're put in. Yeah. She would she would yell at you, I'm almost sure, were she a living. She'd yell, I'm a writer, writer. It, it's it's a strange pigeonholing that goes on. It's largely commercial in its source. It's mm. first thing said about a book. How do we describe it on the cover of a book or the or in a film? Um that said, it's inevitable that it's going to happen. I'll, that would be my obit, you know, mm. uh, and I'm resigned to it. It's not life or death to me. Um, I don't like it, but I don't like death itself, and I'm going to die someday. I can't do a whole lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> Except uh, certainly write about it. And, Except uh, write about it, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think... Uh, Actually, um, I may have even overrun a little bit. I think we're coming, I, I, hard for me to believe at least, uh, maybe not for you, but we're coming to the end of our time together, uh, gentlemen. Um, and it's been a thrill having you on. Uh, Aaron, um, I've let Tim do a lot of the talking here but uh, of late, but uh, maybe you can say more, um, if you want to say anything more about this project or, or maybe you can tell us about what is, what's next for you. I'm happy to uh, have Tim grab the microphone as he should. Um, well, the other thing I would just say, we've, we've dealt with heavy, the heavy themes of the film. Yeah. And one thing um, you get out of this uh, film that I'd just like people to know is that like, as you, you maybe can tell from this podcast, Tim is extremely warm and funny. And it's why, exactly. it's the other reason why I wanted to make the film. He's, well, the first time I interviewed him, he <laughs> had me like, crying but also uh laughing he's you know we 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 share a kind of dark sense of humor and he's he's got a a gallows humor that (laughs) is a running (laughs) running joke uh running throughout the film he's got uh, a really um warm two kid warm family and two boys who are adorable and whip smart and you'll you'll get to meet them in the film and um and yeah i guess like the other thing i would say is that um you know especially the we're living in in dark dark days right now and tim is a good good companion i think people will find some comfort in in kind of sharing the struggles of life with someone who has uh who has had his own share of struggles and has embraced struggle i think uh, almost as a um uh, a way of life it's it's a it's it's the struggle is to uh, to live and to live is to care and and all of that is a burden but uh it's almost not yeah. worth living without it. You know? I, I think you raise an excellent point, and can I second that? I, um, um, it's not too many documentaries I laugh out loud, especially ones that are, have such serious topics as uh, interweaved through the, through the narrative, and I will say I did. I don't want to give anything away, but there, I definitely was uh, more than just chortling. I think I love the scene at the, uh, at the uh, gas station. I think that's, you know, that's just <laughs> typical of a lot of stuff that uh, uh, goes on in that film. Uh, little things too, you zoom in on a 
coffee mug with a funny message on it. I won't say what it says. Uh, this is, I mean, it's not because it's a family program. I mean, I will say that, uh, you know, for those sensitivities about profanity, maybe you might want to steer clear for parts of the film. I don't know. But uh, it is. It's extremely warm. I think it's very, um, it's, it's amazing, I think, what you've captured. I think it's amazing, uh, Tim, uh, uh, that you've opened up your life to us like this. And I, th I think we will all be, uh, we all are appreciative for that. Yeah, we owe him um, a debt of gratitude for sure, because that intimate feeling you get in the film is really because of Tim and Meredith and Timmy and Tad, you know. Yeah, and, and I've got to think once this thing goes, starts streaming and people start seeing it, I mean, it's just got to, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's not that it's a, had a low profile. You've been to some festivals and things like that and been selected, but uh, uh, and I've already alluded to some, some articles that have been written, but I, I just got to think it's... Um, it's one of these, uh, I hate to put it this way, it's not what a filmmaker wants to hear, but it's one of these hidden gems at the moment. It's, it soon will not be hidden anymore. Um, and Tim, maybe I can ask you one last question, if you don't mind. Um, is Dad's Maybe book really your last book? Well, I hadn't thought so. I thought that up with every book. Um, yeah. Perhaps not. I am 74 years old and God knows what will happen as soon as this podcast is over. I may drop dead. I probably will. Well, I'm glad we got it in the can. <laughs> <laughs> but if, but if, that, if that doesn't happen, hmm. there, there may be another. Yeah. Well, I sure hope there is. And I have to admit, hands up, I haven't read Dad's Maybe book yet. But uh, based on the, uh, certainly, uh, and I've, I've, I have had the privilege of reading some of your, some of your other stuff. Uh, but uh, have to say, uh, based on the comments I've seen online in various places, it's definitely one that I'm going to uh, to, to pick up. Um, and so, uh, if, I, if I'll just draw a line at, right there. Thank you, both of you, um, uh, Tim O'Brien, Aaron Matthews. It's been a pleasure having you on. We'd love to have you on again if we haven't scared you off. And if there's maybe the warm peace of Tim O'Brien part two, or if there's a, whatever, uh, if you can imagine that. So anyway, uh, to our listeners and uh, viewers, it, yes, that's the film we've been talking about. I want to give a thanks also to shout uh, to, this is Distorted Studios here in Leeds, England. Uh, Nevin Apanovich, our podcast manager who ensures we continue getting such great guests, such as Tim and Aaron onto the show. And a big thanks to our listeners. Um, We've uh, certainly built up quite an audience in the last, uh, well, last uh, year or so, and uh, thankful for your loyalty and as well as your feedback, whether it's on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Keep the comments and episode ideas coming it is very much appreciated. And as always, please remember to like us and share us uh, with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.